<laughs> well, aren't you a cheeky one? You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, beautiful. Happy Wednesday from Phoenix, Arizona, where we are still hashtag pandemic in Phoenix as we stay outside of New York City for the time being and adjust to our temporary new normal, I suppose. We celebrated Jeremy's birthday last night with a um, a birthday cake, which, I mean, one upside, guys, of quarantine is if I bake a cake... I, there's no one to share with. So we're just going to have to eat the entire cake by ourselves. So there's that. Um, Also the fact that Jeremy got a homemade cake because previously I just would have gone and bought him something, but we're trying not to leave the house. And we did uh, not one, but two Zoom birthday parties with different groups of our friends, which actually is pretty lovely because while our New York friends, we would have gotten together in some way being in New York Ultimately, not everyone would be able to get together. There'd be other people that had conflicting plans. They were traveling for work. They had another thing. They got stuck at work. Another thing went long. And you find that when it comes to Zoom, I mean, very few people have plans these days. So a lot more people are available to all get together. And because you are in a round robin forum. We went to another online birthday party last week. So we figured this out, but it's actually kind of lovely because everyone stays a part of one conversation. You can't be having three conversations at a time, which if everyone was over at our home, we'd be off in these little pockets. So it kind of creates this group dynamic that is really lovely. And then we had a second Zoom party with Jeremy's groomsmen, who are all his friends from childhood that we never never would normally get together. The guys sometimes will, but uh, not with the wives. And so that was a sort of lovely silver lining to have that. But as we are adjusting to our temporary new normal, it is so fascinating to all be having this collective experience. And very specifically, I would say when it comes to work, there is almost no one who for whom business is as usual. We are having very different experiences if we are sick or not, if someone in our life is an incredibly high risk category or not, if we have children home from school or not, if we are in a epicenter or not at this time. But when it comes to work, almost everyone, it feels, has been interrupted in some way, whether your kids are home from school now while you're still trying to work, you are out of work, you are now home and working remotely, you are still at work and there are health concerns with that, you are still trying to do deliveries or you work at a grocery store or you are a nurse or a trash collector and you are still out there, but now you have a heightened sense of concern for your safety and well-being and there's new protocols that are in place. So I would say work is the one common denominator that we are all experiencing a change in. And before I left for Mexico, I recorded a three-part series on this beautiful book called Lost Connections on uncovering the causes of depression and anxiety. And I kicked off part one of that a couple of weeks ago. And then I pushed pause because it just felt like we wanted to talk about some more really relevant and timely things in our last couple of episodes in regards to coronavirus. But this topic of whether or not our work brings us joy, fulfillment, peace, happiness is still so relevant today. And I'm I'm really fascinated by having already recorded this podcast in that 
this was such a relevant topic a couple months ago. It is relevant perhaps in a different way today. And it also will be relevant again in the future because when it comes to the future, our jobs will go back to normal, so to speak, at some point. But in the present, what some people may be experiencing is that they are thinking differently about their work than they were previously. I've heard from some of you online who are realizing that you don't want to be in the field that you are in anymore, that you realize you are so much happier working from home. And if that's not an option when you go back, you are really motivated to want to shift that. You realize how much you want to help people, how being in this time of crisis, that's all you want to do when you feel so unfulfilled now that you're in a job that actually you don't feel like is helping anyone. Um, you were in a you know, a a toxic work environment. And now that you were out of that, you realize, oh my gosh, I have so much more peace being by myself and having these boundaries. I don't want to go back to that. So there's a lot that's coming up that I am curious to see how it shifts for us, our thoughts on work in the future. When we do go back to these jobs, as you think through today's topic and the findings and the research and the anecdotes in this book, does it give you pause to think about how you might end up shifting your work in in the coming months and years. I also think today's topic allows us to have more empathy for one another. If someone in your life is struggling with their work in the season or having these own revelations and reflections, I also really hear this conversation and the teaching in this book as a boss and someone that has a team and employees and the kind of culture that I'm creating for them. And that may Uh, make you even more sensitive during this time. If you were in that position, I really have wanted to be very sensitive to my team and the fact that we all are experiencing a lot of emotion. We may be having that at any time. Someone on my team is going through a divorce. Someone on my team has a sick child at home. But at this point, we are all going through that together. And so how can I really create space and breathing room and yet structure and stability. So I really think this is such a timely conversation, but I did want to point out at the top that it was recorded before coronavirus. So there isn't any of that that is being pulled into this. However, I do have a additional IGTV that I am posting. If it's not live, when this podcast goes up, it will be shortly and I will link it in the show notes, but you can pay attention over on Instagram as I give some specific advice for those who have lost work during this time, how you might consider adding in additional ways to rethink your business and to create some additional revenue in this time. 45% of my audience has said that uh, in an Instagram story poll that I did that you or your partner or spouse has lost work during this time. So then I asked what fields you were in and I wrote those down and I put them into eight different categories of what the next step would be in business. And I fly through a bunch of different ways that you can think about that and some very practical next steps. So keep an eye out for that on Instagram and enjoy today's episode. As I shared last week, he talks about nine different causes of depression or anxiety and what the antidotes to those are. And of those, there was three, not three of the nine causes, but three themes that I saw throughout that felt most applicable in my life and work that as you know, students on the entrepreneur side and the style side and my Instagram comments and my DMs that uh, are mostly women and diverse in age and income and also in my friends and family, these topics are the ones that I see and hear come up the most. And then what we're going to talk about this week is lack of meaningful work. And I want to be clear 
right off the bat that this has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. It is why I do love helping people with entrepreneurship because I do believe meaningful work is so important and that is a beautiful and wonderful way to get it. But I also always say that not everyone can be a wedding photographer in the world. We need other roles. It is wonderful in society that not everyone wants to be working for themselves, running their own business. That simply wouldn't be sustainable. We would all have such a smaller impact. If every one of us worked for ourselves and nobody worked for someone else, we'd have all these teeny tiny businesses. I mean, how much of an impact could, you know, Jeff Bezos be having in the world if he didn't have anybody who wanted to work under him? He just wouldn't be revolutionizing industry. Not that I'm saying that Jeff Bezos is, you know, making all the change, but you see what I mean. We need to be collaborative and work together. And yet, a lot of the roles that come to mind for me in the world that we do need someone doing, the truth is we are automating at a pretty alarming rate. I don't know what the statistic is, but Jeremy said something to me recently about the percentage of jobs that are going to be automated by 2030, which is only in 10 years, and it was alarming. You know, Checkout clerks at the grocery store. Already, when I go to CVS, they give me the option to check out by myself. And there's still people there, but more and more, we're not going to need that. A bus driver. When we have self-driving cars, we're going to have self-driving buses, right? A, a toilet cleaner, a housekeeper. How many things around the house could you just automate? You know, you've seen those toilets in, I don't know, airports or whatever that just automatically clean themselves when you flush and they put like a new liner around the toilet seat cover. I mean... I'm sure there's going to be something we can install in our homes pretty soon that's going to be able to do something like that if, like me, you're someone that hires a housekeeper. Uh, I thought, you know, a Subway sandwich shop maker. Think about going into Subway sandwich and or a Panera or a Sweet Greens, like whatever place you go to make a salad or a sandwich. That could be done by a machine, right? You could push the buttons on the machine and they could do like the, you know, fistful of arugula and the scoop of raisins and whatever it is, a barista. You go into your local coffee shop, a, a machine, we, I mean, I, I have an espresso in my kitchen. I know that a machine can already make me a latte. We can get to the point where Starbucks doesn't need people in there. They don't need as many people. You just push the buttons and it happens. Now, amongst the jobs that we do have, some jobs are very hard, but people are very passionate about them a doctor and a policeman. Uh, some jobs are very hard and people are really passionate about them. They also pay very little. Uh, you know, someone who works at a daycare for little kids or elderly care or I have to get my blood drawn. You know, the person who works at the blood sample place, like that is, they may be passionate about healthcare, but they are not getting paid very much compared to what a doctor is. Some jobs are hard and you are not passionate about and they don't make you a lot of money, which the author speaks to in this book. Um, you know, what about people with low meaning, low passion jobs and low paying jobs? He talks about how his parents and his grandparents all had jobs like that. And it's one of the reasons that I really wanted to share about this book because I felt that he really honored all people. He wasn't being elitist to those who have the blessing and the means and the first world lifestyle to go find and create meaningful work in the ways that we think about. And I don't have all the answers. We're not going to have all the answers today. Uh, Johan, the author, does not have all the answers, but he does have some. And I'm going to read you some experts and uh, some excerpts a little bit of tongue twister, some excerpts and some overviews of what he writes. So of the nine causes, three of them to me are all aligned in this. And it is meaningful work, lack of meaningful work, 
lack of status and respect, and lack of hope and a secure future. So let me read to you from the chapter on meaningful work. He says that between 2011 and 2012, the polling, cal- the polling company Gallup conducted the most detailed study ever carried out of how people across the world feel about their work. They studied millions of workers in 142 countries and found that 13% of us say we are engaged in our jobs. Only 13% of us say we are enthusiastic about and committed to their work and contributing to their organization in a positive manner. They wondered how does your work affect your health? So in the 1970s, They thought, what would be the perfect laboratory to be able to study this? And they decided to choose the British Civil Service, which is like their government. Because everyone who has those jobs, nobody is poor. Nobody is going home to a damp house. They're all getting paid a livable wage. And everybody does a desk job. So there isn't any more physical exertion that would affect their physical health. So the two levels that were left to separate out the different people in this government structures to test them were how much they were paid and how much responsibility they were given at work. So when they pondered who was the most likely to be the most overwhelmed, the most physically stressed in their body, almost everyone believed the boss. He has the most stressful job. But they noticed as they conducted this research and they interviewed these people that the top-level civil servants, in a conversation, they would lean back and take charge of the conversation. Whereas the lower grade civil servants, they would lean forward and wait for him to tell them what to do. What they found out was that people at the top were four times less likely to have a heart attack. And as your position in the civil service rose, as you went up in promotion, your chances of developing depression fell. So they wondered, as you rise up in the civil service, what actually changes in your work that could explain this shift? It turns out that it has to do with whether you have a higher degree of control over your work. When you do, you're a lot less likely to become depressed than people working at the same pay level with the same status in the same office. By contrast, if you are a top civil servant and you have an idea, you have a good chance of making it happen. But if you're a lower-ranking civil servant, you had to learn to be passive. The higher up you went in the civil service, they found the more friends and social activities that you had after work. The lower you went, people with the boring, low-status jobs, they just want to collapse in front of the television when they get home. They found that when work is enriching, life is fuller, and that spills over into the things you do outside of work. When it's deadening, you just feel shattered at the end of the day. They found disempowerment is at the heart of poor health. They did another study within the British government because they had found that the staff investigating tax returns kept killing themselves. They were motivated to figure out why this was. And the staff explained that when they came into work, they felt immediately attacked by their inboxes. No matter how hard you worked, it felt like you would never get your head above water. And even when they worked really hard and gave it their best, nobody noticed. And as a boss, I read that and my takeaways are, 
Okay, so we want to give people more responsibility, not just as in more work, but more ownership. We want to give people more roles, more room to grow into roles where their voice and opinions matter, where their new ideas would actually be acted upon. They aren't just being asked to carry something out, but the role says, I want you to innovate here. I want you to problem solve. I want you to think creatively. Giving them more freedom over their workflow, being less of a micromanager, and making sure that they don't feel like no matter how hard we work, we never get ahead. This is something we've definitely struggled with at Team Dean is this just constant like it doesn't matter how hard we work, we're still going to be sprinting to the next thing. And we have finally shifted that after a lot of internal things that I have changed about my own company just in this past month. We are in a new season and it feels really wonderful. But making sure that we have wins and we celebrate them, that there are ends to seasons and sprints. There are seasons when we're less busy, which is one that we are in right now. April, March and April for us is the first time in a year, over a year, that we have been less busy and able to just really work on organization and diving into you know, deeper into uh, projects and acknowledging their hard work and the contribution that they're making and the difference that the company as a whole is making. Realizing, I see your podcast reviews. I get your DMs. I read your Instagram comments. The customer service team sees the emails that you reply. Our team sees what our mastermind students have to say because we're all in that private group, but that's a tiny percentage of our audience. By and large, the other core members of our team can not see the impact that we're having if I don't make an effort to communicate what you guys are so wonderfully and beautifully telling me and say to the rest of the team, this this is the impact that you are having. You are a part of that. And I share that because many of you listening are entrepreneurs Or if you are a boss or a manager in some other way at any company, you can take this to heart. You may have the power to shape things in your work or world in a way that not everyone does. You may have some ownership and authority in your company that people beneath you don't feel that they have. And I think about this often, and it doesn't mean that it works. (laughs) Um, I am constantly still telling my team to lean in to take ownership, to not just identify a problem, but bring a solution with it, to be a creative problem solver. And over the years, I've found that not everyone can rise to that or take a hold of it. So it doesn't mean that just by giving someone the invitation, they will take it or they will succeed at it, but it's a place to start. If you are more empowered in your role on a team or in a company, I would encourage you to really get empowered by this book and think about it. But what if you don't? feel empowered. You are the low man on the totem pole and you're hearing this and thinking, that sounds exactly like my job. (laughs) I, I am those people that were more likely to get heart attacks and depression. This is depressing to find out that I am more likely to be that. So I am not promising any answers, but let's keep reading into the chapter on disconnection from status and respect. So there was a gentleman that studied baboons out in the savannas of Africa, and he found out that when baboons experience the most stress, it's when there's a war on for the position of alpha male. The most stressed baboons are the ones at the top, and this happens often when there's a a hierarchy, a power struggle that happens out on the savannas. But the majority of the time, the lower you are in the hierarchy, the more stressed you are. 
So occasionally when you're at the top and your status is threatened, you're the most stressed. But mostly when you're at the bottom, you're the most stressed because everybody is, you know, stepping on you. So our closest cousins, genetically, are the most stressed in two situations. When their status is threatened and when their status is low. Having an insecure status is the one thing even more distressing than having a low status. As upsetting as it was to have a low status, it actually was a higher cortisol level for the people that had an insecure status, that thought they might lose their status. What this means is that the more unequal our society is, the more prevalent all forms of mental illness are. And we have seen that through a variety of studies. This doesn't affect people only at the bottom. In a highly unequal society, everyone has to think about their status a lot and worry, am I maintaining my position? Today, we are living with status gaps that are bigger than any in human history. And of course, much of our status has to do with work, how much money we make, our title, how much freedom we have to make decisions, how much power. So in reading this, you're forced to realize this could be all of us, not just those of us who don't have a fulfilling job, but anyone who wonders, could someone come along who's more talented? Could the market change and I be left behind? What if the next employee becomes the golden child or my competitor you know, launches, brings something to market before me? So as we've been saying in this mini book club series that we're having, the causes of depression and anxiety are not individual. They're societal, and this is one example of that. We live in a society that threatens us with fear about our status. And you might think that you don't care about that, but what if your farming industry just dies in the next year and you're homeless? I mean, that is a plummet in status, in respect, in self-respect. So as we said last week, you might think, well, I'm not materialistic. You might think, no, I don't really care about my status. But this threatening of status is saying, what if your job is automated? What if your industry changes? What if you no longer can provide for your home, can get groceries? Like You realize that there is a low-grade uncertainty for almost all of us in society that no one, I mean, you know, maybe the Bill Gates billionaires, I would think other than that, there are very few of us that could truly say my status just meaning as a middle class person, as a person that owns a home or whatever that is, that my status is secure. So again, what do we do about that? And again, there are no easy answers, but let's keep reading on to the chapter that has to do with a hopeful and secure future. They did a study on the 196 First Nations groups, which were the Canadian term for the Native American groups of peoples, and they found that they had the highest levels of suicide in the country. They wanted to explore why this was, and they found that of those 196 communities, the ones with the lowest control had the highest suicide meaning the ones where the government was most likely to come in and make decisions for them and wasn't giving them any say in their votes, wasn't letting them speak up as to what they wanted for themselves, where they had the lowest control, they felt the greatest sense of hopelessness and purposefulness and thus the highest level of depression and suicide. 
There was another study that was done of a psychiatric unit for teenagers. And they asked these teenagers, half of whom were struggling with suicidal depression and half of whom were struggling with anorexia. And they walked them through books such as A Christmas Carol that we all know with the character Scrooge. And they said, will Scrooge be the same person in the future after he meets the ghosts and goes through a change of heart? Or will he change who he is? And the anorexic kids could answer these questions normally. But they found that the depressed kids couldn't. And when they asked them similar questions about themselves, when they were asked to describe themselves 5, 10, or 20 years from now, they were at a loss. That if you were depressed, there was a serious disconnection from a sense of the future. It was so prevalent that you couldn't even imagine how it could be possible, how it could be hopeful. Whereas if you were struggling from something like anorexia, it was easier to believe that there would be or could be a change in a few months or years for yourself or even for a fictional character in a book. The truth is that in this day and age, we have so many middle-class people who don't have any contract or security. We've given it a fancy name called being self-employed or the gig economy, but the truth is that for many, the expectations they were raised with for what comes next in their life seems to have all but vanished. The idea that I can get a job and it will provide for me and I will be able to get a house and I will provide for my family. And if I'm a good worker, I will have consistent income. That lack of security fundamentally doesn't exist anymore in our world. And there's a difference between saying, okay, I'm having a S-H-I-T-T-Y is the word. Um, We're going to avoid the explicit rating. So, okay, I'm having a ish day. But I'm not having an ish life. When you have a sense of hopelessness and a lack of a vision of a secure and better future, our minds turn from, ugh, I'm having a crap day to, I'm just having a crap life. And if I believe that to be true, then why would I keep working and putting forth any effort? And I can empathize having had suicidal ideation, as I shared in the very first episode of this podcast, that in my experience, it happens when you lose that hope of the future. Like You can't see things changing from how they are right now. You can't imagine feeling any different than you do right now, and the way you feel right now feels unbearable. And I can see how, as a culture, we develop that pervasive fear of the future when Jobs are going overseas and getting replaced by machines and industries are drying up when people used to do one thing for 50 years and now they're constantly having to change jobs and industries and get retrained and we just aren't that secure. You know, it it used to be that you believed that you would make similar to or a little more money than your parents. And now studies have shown that not everyone believes that's true more present generations tend to be concerned that they will be able to maintain the same lifestyle that they were raised with. And for forever, that just wasn't true. Everyone always believed that it was just going to go up and up. And I think that's important because, at least for me, I can look at someone, myself included, going through a deep depression and look at the specific facts. You got broken up with. 
you lost your job, you're in debt. And as we've been saying, it feels more personal and isolated. It's not that we're judging. It just looks like a circumstance happened to you that both you and I would observe hasn't happened to me. You went through a breakup. I didn't go through a breakup. So it makes sense that you are depressed. But this perspective says we can all struggle with a much more subtle yet pervasive fear of the future. So much so that you might not even be able to pinpoint exactly why you're depressed or even that you are depressed because it's it's light. It's just slowly crept up. You don't even realize it's what you're feeling because you've just lived with it for so long. But, you know, I feel it when I think about politics and the war in Syria and global warming. Like, I can feel like I don't have a lot of hope for the future. I feel overwhelmed. That can make me feel depressed. And as an individual, I can feel more hopeful about my individual life, what I'm going to be able to do, where I'm headed, what my goals and dreams are. But as a people, you know, if I think about maybe bringing a child into this world someday, I can admit I feel a little more concerned. I feel less hopeful or secure in what the future would be for this next generation. And as secure as I am, I can see now that I haven't even thought about the fact that every success I see on Instagram could be a little threat. Like, I think that I'm joyful for these other people that I'm seeing have have success and celebrate them. And I, I am joyful for them. Like, but is there a flicker beneath of what if it disappears for me? What if I'm too late? What if they grow more? Would there be less for me? If they're doing this now and I haven't yet, does that mean that I'm not going to get there? We talked about this a little bit last week. It doesn't mean that I have a negative mindset that is all about fear and I'm all about judging other people. It's noticing, is there 10% of that thought that's so subconscious I'm not even tracking on it that says, oh, I'm happy for her. I mean, I feel a little bit behind, but I really am happy for her. It doesn't mean that we're bad people and we're, we, we can't have joy in anyone else's success. But must we acknowledge, yeah, I do have those thoughts that maybe I am a little bit not secure. Not I'm insecure as a, as a person in myself. Like, you know, you would say like, I just feel like really insecure. But I, I'm insecure about, will I always be at this level from a, not from a fame and a coolness perspective, but like, can we keep affording our house? Can we keep affording clothes? Can we keep not living, you know, financially insecure? And that's part of why I want us to talk about this because there is depression as a kind of capital letters concept, but are we perhaps all more depressed than some of us know and we haven't known why and could knowing why and noticing allow us to do something about it. I'm honestly not sure, but it's better than not trying, right? So next he talks about how would we connect, reconnect to meaningful work. So he goes back to that statistic that 80% of us feel either disengaged or enraged by our jobs. Jobs where we're spending 50 or 60 hours a week. And he notes that meaningless work still has to be done. He said, my maternal grandmother cleaned toilets. My maternal grandfather worked on the docks. My dad was a bus driver. My brother orders stock for a supermarket. 
He said, as I type this, I'm picturing one person I know and love who's a single mother working a low-paid job she hates in order to keep her three kids in their apartment, telling her she needs a more fulfilling job when she's battling to keep a job at all would be both mean and meaningless. So he talks about a bike shop where he goes and spends a lot of time, a bicycle shop. And I'm going to skim over a lot of the details, even though it is hugely important in the point that he's making. And I said last week, this book is so good. I highly recommend reading it. But in essence, it is a cooperative. It is a group of people who said, let's all get together and co-own this business. And it kind of explains how they divide up what their roles are and how everyone has a role and a say. And cooperatives are one option that he suggests. And I think it's fascinating to read about and think, could something like this apply in my world? And how is this a little bit different than being a solopreneur? I also get slightly hesitant about that concept because I had two business partners for the last few years that I parted with one and then for for different reasons another in 2019. And for me, I realized that more heads does not necessarily mean more progress or less stress. So I sort of felt like the what he was describing felt more like the work I had been in that actually wasn't any different to my being a solopreneur. And what he describes also sounds pretty similar to my team today. And I'm not saying that life is idyllic at every moment for uh, my employees, but the fundamental keys are there in the things these people in the cooperative were experiencing. I would think Team Dean is experiencing a lot of those as well. And so perhaps what he's talking about is even more small businesses that Maybe they're cooperatives. Maybe there are multiple people that are all sharing the the calling the shots and the having ownership. Or maybe it's just more enlightened leaders and bosses and team members and employees creating something that really works. But it comes back to a lot of those components we talked about before of having a voice and having a, a ability to feel like you have some control and some purpose. He says, this might sound like a pretentious way to describe a bike shop, but it more closely resembles the participative tribes that human beings evolved to live in on the savannas of Africa a millennia ago, one in which everyone is needed and everyone has a role that is meaningful to them. It allows people to be reconnected to your work, reconnected to a sense of status, and reconnected to the future. We've learned through studies that people want to work but everyone wants to feel useful and have a purpose. It's not that we don't want to work. And again, studies have shown that if we just got to lay around all day, we actually wouldn't feel fulfilled. But it's that we want healthier work environments that make us feel that we have more of a voice and a purpose. And I think it would be interesting to read these chapters and ponder what that might mean for yourself and the people in your lives. Then the final chapter is about reconnection through restoring the future. And he says, there was one more obstacle hanging over all these attempts to overcome depression and anxiety. And it seemed larger than anything I'd addressed up to now. If you're going to try to reconnect in the ways I've been describing, you will need time and you will need confidence. But we are constantly being drained of both. Most people are working all the time and they are insecure about the future. 
In the 1970s, there was an area in Canada that was chosen to do a study where up until now, the welfare state had worked by trying to plug gaps that, you know, they're catching people who fall below a certain level and in income and sort of nudging them back up. And this time, they proposed what's been called a universal basic income. Instead of using a net to catch people when they fall, uh, this proposes to raise the floor on which everyone stands. They found that in the United States, if you have an income below $20,000, you are more than twice as likely to become depressed as someone who makes $70,000 or more. They went back and did a study on the people that had received this universal basic income. It was something that one government proposed. Another group came in and took power. They stopped doing it. Nobody analyzed the data. And decades later, one woman was curious, and she went back in and she analyzed the data. And she found so many things that had happened in this community based on this season where they had the universal basic income. One of the biggest changes was in how women saw themselves. She met with one woman who had taken her check and used it to become the first female in her family to get a post-secondary education. She trained to be a librarian and rose to be one of the most respected people in the community. She showed Evelyn pictures of her two daughters graduating and talked about how proud she was to have become a role model for them. They also found benefits like students stayed in school longer and performed better there. The number of low birth weight babies declined. Depression and anxiety in the community fell significantly. Now, we mentioned this at the beginning. There are some jobs that people work just in order to survive that are terrible, demeaning jobs, but they have to have a job and that's all that's available to them. So they don't have any power to do anything else. But with a universal basic income, which is a stipend that covers simply what is needed to put a roof over your head and pay for your food, it gives people the little bit of power to be able to say, I don't need to stay here. And then that puts the impetus on the people who run those jobs to either make them more appealing with better work environments or to raise the pay to make them more appealing. It used to be that people would be in the same industry until they're 65. But today, people are struggling to find that kind of stability in labor as robots and technology render more and more jobs obsolete. As we've said, we blame a collective problem on the individual. So you're depressed? You should get a pill. You don't have a job? Go to a job coach. But that doesn't get to the root of the problem, which is what's actually happening to our labor market. Again, when they have tested this concept of the universal basic income in other areas, they found effects like parents choosing to spend a lot more time with their children. Behavioral problems like ADHD and childhood depression fell by 40%. All over the world, from Brazil to India, these experiments kept finding the same result. When you ask people, what would you personally do with the basic income? 99% will say, I'm going to do something ambitious and useful. But when you ask what you think other people would do with it, you'll say, oh, they'll just binge watch Netflix all day. Again, obviously some boring things still have to be done in the world, but it means those employers have to offer either better wages or better working conditions. When people are free to say no, the definition of work becomes something that somehow adds value. Now, this concept of the universal basic income, it First of all, it may be a political issue. I'm honestly 
not sure. Um, I didn't set out with some agenda, but I was so compelled with this book that I just can't dismiss it. I have read and reread these chapters. I said last week, I've read this book three times now, like a total dork. And I am so convicted by how blessed I am to feel that I would never again be in the position where I would need that support. I have claimed $10,000 a year on my taxes numerous times in New York City. I have been below the poverty line. I would have qualified for food stamps if I had had the thought process to even do that. I have collected unemployment insurance. And I now believe that Jeremy and I will never be in that position. But I realize how blessed I am in that. And I feel so convicted reading this of how many people are not, how many people don't have that security. And that it is elitist of me to say that depression is a individual problem that you should work on with your doctor and you should go out and, and get resourceful instead of saying, maybe culture is just not making a way for these people to be helped. Maybe we all need to help one another. And it talks about how all of the crazy things that have happened, because this is a major change. This would be a major change in America or in whatever country you are listening. And it's not going to happen because of one episode on the You're Welcome podcast. But things do change with voting and donations and discussions with our friends and having knowledge, you know. Uh, President Obama has said that this could happen realistically in the next 20 years. And again, I'm not trying to make a political or a campaign statement for one party or the other, but I would say that whether it was him or Mitt Romney or John McCain, if there was someone on either side of the aisle that said, I think this is realistic in 20 years. I'd be like, well, sir, I think you have researched that a lot more than I have. And that is very compelling to me to think that there are people who are 40, they could have this in place by 60 and live the last third of their life without this weight of depression. That's compelling. And of everything I've read in this book, this one feels the most like an issue that people who have less than us need people like us to care enough to fight for them. You know, I do make more than $20,000 a year. Almost everyone in my life does. And I would imagine almost every one of you who has a smartphone to listen to a personal development podcast does. Not everyone, but most. And therefore, it's not their fault, the people that don't. And we know that, that where they were born or their socioeconomic class or their opportunities or education or just simply hard luck and life heartbreaks. And it doesn't you know, it, it's not enough to talk about it on a podcast episode, but at least for today, I feel a little more, uh, I guess, if not encouraged and empowered, at least a little more educated. And I know that this is a huge thing. Like it's a cultural issue and a change. And therefore, the author ends this book with so much inspiration. I'm not going to read it all to you. I honestly tried to pull out something and I was like, okay, basically want to read you guys the last five pages and this is not the audiobook version. So go read the book. But the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, women being able to work and vote and have property and run for office and run their own businesses. I mean, the world is honestly full of inspiration and proof that we can change culture. We can fundamentally and radically change society. 
We can get better. We can make the world safer and more fair for more of us. And in the much smaller sphere of our lives, maybe this conversation just makes us more empathetic to a friend who's miserable in their job, more likely to encourage them to go get a different one instead of just stop complaining, you're annoying me. But like this ish matters. Like, Emma, go, I I think you should really look into work where you are more fulfilled. And maybe it encourages you to support a small business or support companies where you see a culture that you think workers are being treated well, as opposed to companies where you don't think that they're motivated to treat their workers well because they can treat people poorly and people will keep buying. Maybe it helps you to fight for change in your office or be a better manager or be more grateful for the work that you have, or more clear on what you want to shift if there isn't something that you're fully uh, inspired by, or more inspired like me to start a business and create that culture for your team. Like, heck, maybe it helps you just treat your husband with more respect because you understand how important respect is and, you know, give your high schooler more of a voice because you read this book and you realize how important feeling valued and having a voice and a vote is. Or just notice, you know, what your feelings really are, like where they're really coming from. If it has anything to do with a lack of meaningful work, with status and respect and having a voice, with feeling hopeful and secure in your future. And Take whatever actions you can to feel more joy. I think what I get out of this is that we want to be part of a tribe and we want to feel safe and needed. And we have wanted and needed those things since the beginning of our existence. And the way our our culture is today, again, not just in America, but all over the world, that is being threatened We are disconnected, we feel unsafe, and we don't feel needed. And how can we come together and change that? And when he lists off all of these incredible things that have happened throughout the world, all of these movements that have changed, he says, they all have only happened for one reason only, because enough brave people banded together and demanded it. And again, I know that one little podcast episode isn't going to change the world, but it's what I've got. So I'm offering it today, and together we are making this our one little drop in the bucket if we notice our thoughts and our actions going forward. So please come over to Instagram. I would really love to know your thoughts on this. I think this is a fascinating, powerful, complex topic. Please comment on my recent post instead of sending me a DM or a voice memo over there. Put it in the comments because that way we can all see and converse and communicate. It's just a closed door conversation that only blesses you and I. Whereas if you put it over there, thousands of people are going to see it. And again, we really can amplify any of the efforts that we're putting forth to bring more people into this conversation. And speaking of conversations, what shall we cover on the podcast in April? I would love if you would go over to hillaryrushford.com slash pod VIP. I will put that link and my Instagram below. Leave Leave me a voice memo, send me an email, and tell me what topics, questions, and conversations you would love for us to have next. And I will see you back here next Wednesday with Grace and Gumption. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is joy in the midst of this craziness and shenanigans that bring a little light and laughter. So I filmed a 
little style video, little inspirational video the other day of my uh, present wardrobe as we were heading out for a bike ride over the weekend. And I will have you know that when I said to Jeremy, I was like, oh, I'm going to have you film a video of me. He's like, okay, what? I kind of explained to him what it was. And he was like, okay. He was, his face was being like, I don't really think that's going to be helpful or funny or anything. And then we're filming it. He doesn't crack a smile. He doesn't laugh. He's not trying to hold it together behind the camera. So I'm like, I don't know. Maybe this, maybe this wasn't funny, but y'all, you get me in a way my husband does not get me. An, a prophet is always without honor in his own home, you know? So uh, it became my second most watched IGTV ever. And the videos that you said of you guys cackling along, the number of you that shared on Instagram stories really just brought me so much joy that here I'm just talking about my awkward bike shorts that feel like I'm wearing a maxi pad times 100 and uh, that it just brought you joy in your day. And I specifically heard from one woman who just was shared like the most joyful video cracking up over it and then Jeremy and I were cracking over her cracking up and she replied and just said we found out that my husband and my son both lost their job in the same day uh or or that day and she's like it was just the joy that I needed so thank you for that so I'm gonna link that in the show notes head over and watch that if you haven't already and shared it because it seems to be bringing joy and I am doing my best over on Instagram every day to sort of balance out as much joy and light and levity as I can bring, but also just really earnestly, honestly, and empathetically uh, sharing what my experience is in this moment and not trying to uh, deny or ignore or sugarcoat anything that's happening, but also um, trying not to give into all of the moments of, of overwhelm and despair that we're feeling and trying to just honestly walk that balance that I'm walking for myself every day and share that with you. So truly, I cannot thank you enough for those of you that are um, over there and liking and commenting and just being our community in this time when we are all alone in Arizona. It has been really beautiful and I'm just so grateful to have a community like you in this season. So I will see you over there with grace and gumption. next Wednesday.